Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that samples as much as it can of the experiences of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including a study that reveals surprising insights on the next generation of car buyers. We have an interview with a major executive with a huge international consultancy. His role is to look at innovation and what the future may hold to do with transport. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including Google receives a patent for autonomous car bus detection just when it had had an accident with the bus. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interview and road tests by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program and an extended version of the quirky news by going to Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to start the program, let's have the news. New research from Cox Automotive Brands in the US throws lights on the thoughts of Generation Z, who are nearly a quarter of the population, who many predict will have a widely different approach to cars. They are not planning to give up cars to the extent that some people thought. 92% still own or plan to own a vehicle, and 97% have or plan to get a licence. They are more concerned about the environment, but they still rate price as the most important factor when buying a car. Generation Z are not as materialistic as millennials were as teenagers, but they do value safety features more than previous generations. ABI research has suggested that self-driving cars will disrupt the car world sooner than many people think. By 2030, ABI believes that 400 million people will rely on autonomous cars, many of which will be owned by large corporations rather than individuals. The transition will occur in three phases, street rental service, ride sharing service and robotic service. They believe that the distinction between car sharing and ride sharing will soon disappear. In the future, as cars become autonomous and human drivers become less relevant, precisely who owns a car will be less important than the fact that it is shared. Much of the focus of autonomous vehicles has been for individual passengers, but an automated bus ran one route in the Greek city of Trakala and will soon carry passengers through a Spanish city. The six-month trial went off without any accidents. The bus moves slowly with a maximum speed of 20 kilometres per hour and it can't yet change lanes. Instead, it stops for any cars parked in its way. The vehicle is a 10-passenger electric bus, which looks more like an airport shuttle than a city bus, and it was built by the French consortium Robosoft. The trial was possible after a little-noticed amendment to the United Nations Convention on Road Traffic was agreed recently that would let drivers take their hands off the wheel of self-driving cars. It was pushed by Germany, Italy and France, whose high-end car makers believe they are ready to zoom past American tech pioneers and bring the first autonomous vehicles to the market. 
Birmingham City Council has launched a research project to help it develop plans for a clean air zone. The new project involves deploying seven automatic number plate recognition cameras on key routes into the city. The Euro emissions classification of vehicles will then be used to give an indication of the environmental impact of the vehicles. Councillor Lisa Trickett said road transport emissions are reported to account for around 600 premature deaths each year in Birmingham alone, meaning this is a 21st century public health scandal and there is no escape from the need to look at how we reduce these emissions. A brand new car designed by motoring experts for 5 to 10 year olds is to launch in May 2016 in the UK so the youngsters can learn about driving from an early age. The young people will be able to drive the vehicle at selected young driver venues across the UK. Road systems will be created to allow young drivers to try their hands at everything from manoeuvring, junctions and traffic lights to reversing and parking. And they can also learn that looks are important. The cars have a contemporary body styled by car designer Chris Johnson who has over 30 years experience in automotive and design industries. Toyota is to launch a new plug-in hybrid Prius to be called the Prime. Toyota says that the vehicle can do 35 kilometres without having to start the petrol engine and with a full tank of petrol they have a range of over 960 kilometres. Toyota says it will likely get 2 litres per 100 kilometres in fuel consumption. That figure would represent the best fuel consumption rating for any plug-in hybrid currently on the road. But to achieve this figure requires you to charge up the battery before you start. Once you have used all the battery charge, the car will operate at a still credible 4.5 litres per 100 kilometres. And that has been the news. You might think of big transport and civil engineering consultancies as being focused on just meeting the needs of their customers on specific projects and keeping their ideas about the future fairly close to their chests for competitive advantage. Companies do make public presentations, but often these are on projects they have just done. But they can be more than this, and especially of late, there are companies that are becoming more committed to working with a wide range of stakeholders, not just for a short-term benefit, but to enhance our general understanding and to improve the environment in which we all work. Stakeholders might include clients, potential clients, non-clients, the community, and even competitors. Just recently, I was privileged to meet Dr. Chris Lubkeman from the Arab Consulting Group, which is a major engineering organisation with clients around the world. Chris is an Arab Fellow and Global Director. He leads their foresight plus research plus innovation area. He travels the world giving keynote speeches, presentations and facilitation. And I am privileged to have him on the line now. Chris, thanks very much for your time. David, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Now, how did your team come about? Well, you know, David, I joined Arab about 16 years ago as the head of R&D. And after about three years, one of the things that I observed was that many of our projects took between 10 and 20 years between their inception and their realization. And that was not necessarily because of the length 
of the engineering aspect, but sometimes some big civil works are fairly complex and take quite a long time to gestate, to be approved, and then to come to their fruition. And I was wondering, what were we doing to ensure that our projects were fit for purpose when they were done? Not just solving the engineering problems, but to make sure that we were really solving and thinking about the context into which these projects would, if you will, be given birth into. And I realized that we had a lot more to think about than we were at that time. It's interesting you consider things like roads, but uh, more importantly, things like hospitals. What might be a good hospital now in 20 years' time could be radically changed. Absolutely. You know, hospitals, schools, museums, highways, railroads, uh, retail, we've looked at many different things. And all of them have a, a sort of a, I call the three timelines. You have the now, the new, and the next. The now is really the things which we're looking at today that are implementable today, the new is sort of three to five years away, and the next is right around 20 years. That's, sort of, for me, the sweet spot when it's not quite science fiction, but it's not quite just keeping both feet firmly planted in the mud. The thing we often do now is we talk about automating things, automating cars and so on, but we tend to talk about it as just automating what we do already, but really this new technology could change our whole approach completely. Absolutely. You know, I think the big key here is the possibility to understand patterns in the way that we've never been able to understand patterns before. And these patterns, you can think of all, all the way into the innermost parts of our bodies out to how does a whole city move around. And for the very, very, very first time, we're able to gather this data so that we can see the patterns of life. I mean, quite figuratively, all the way from the genome up to in, an entire region where people are moving, where goods are moving, where water is moving, electricity, so we can see where, the, where, the, where it's being used and where it's being wasted, and the same in our bodies. How did clients take to this? Did the, that help you work with clients over what the, the brief is, not just what the outcome is according to what, as they see it? You know, David, it really depends on which client groups we're talking about. Some clients really, truly want to think about the next 20 years so that they're prepared for those 20 years, and other clients are just happy to get on and do what they know they just want is sort of yesterday's business and today's delivery. So it's really quite dependent. You know, I, Every time you present a client with real interesting, challenging thinking, they rise to the challenge, uh, but, and I wish I could. But at Arup, you know, we do like to challenge our clients to think bigger and think more systemically than what they might want to. And again, some of our clients embrace it and others are not quite so keen. Going back to where you were, you, were, you said earlier that we have now an immense information about that. A, a critical element is spending the time and effort to interpret all the information that's coming in? Is that one of the key issues for the future? So the, the amount of data that we can now acquire is increasing exponentially. And the interpretation of that data is in its infancy. 
So I would argue that many data sets have information which are embedded within them that we have yet to figure out what it's saying to us. So taking time to look at those data sets, to visualize them, to interpret them in a nonpartisan way becomes really a great challenge and a huge opportunity. I mean, I talked to some of our transportation planners and they say this is the golden age for transportation planning because for the very first time in our lives, we truly know where people are going to and where they're coming from. Up until now, it's always been a guess and someone's sitting on a street corner with a clicker in their hand and they click right turn, left turn, straight. And then all they're looking at are those very banal numbers. But now with our sort of our smartphone data, we know where people are going and we actually can understand that. And so this is the, the moment in time that's quite exciting for mobility. One of my key interests is what are the key measures that we use in some cases uh, it has been pushing in a modern sense towards just profitability or or at least maximizing return financially from transport systems. Yet there are a whole range of other key measures in a city and Sydney. One of them that's becoming a little more prominent is equity, that are we serving areas fairly? Do you think we're taking a broader look at what is the real measure of uh, your measures mm. of what we're trying to achieve? So I think we're getting better and better at that on one hand, and we're getting worse and worse. <laughs> so we've got these sort of, <laughs> you know, we've got these two trends happening simultaneously. I think you've already named one, which is the profitability, which is a direct measure, not necessarily the indirect measure, because the turnstile income is easy to assess. The economic engine, which is associated with the movement of the individual and the purchasing patterns of the individual while they're empowered by that transit or transportation, whatever mode, is much more difficult to assess. But what we can begin to see with the data of the about the individuals who are moving from point A to B to C to D to E to F we can begin to track and trace the income brackets, the modal shifts, um, so that you can begin, so you can really begin to see this. And then the question of social equity is able to be engaged. Without the data, you can't engage the question. And so now I, I say the positive part is we now can be able to look at this in a very real way. And then as a society, we have to decide the value of allowing all citizens to have the opportunity to work, to contribute, and to pay taxes through their work. Right? That's a board. We just want it just to be for one segment of society. Are we happy with stratification? And those are much more difficult questions to answer altogether. Nonetheless, an exciting time and to have a broad vision I think is, is absolutely wonderful. Not that, That's often used, broad vision, as a general statement, yet I think uh, you and your group are very specifically getting into that. Chris, I've uh, taken much of your time, but I do appreciate it greatly. Thank you very much. David, it's a real pleasure and thanks for calling. And it is Chris Lubkeman, who is uh, an Arab consulting fellow and global director, and he leads their force plus research plus innovation area.
And you can hear more of this discussion with the thoughtful and erudite Dr. Chris Lubkeman from Arab Consulting, including covering issues such as the role of politics and its impact in land use transport decision making. Just go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And let's talk some of the more unusual stories to do with the world of motoring and transport. And once again, I'm joined on the line by Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Now, I have to give a presentation to a men's group about whether cars still have an image for people. Perhaps we do not put as much emphasis on the car that we used to, perhaps when we were growing up. Uh, There's a trend for young people not to look for a trophy in buying a car, but really only look for accessibility. Now, there's a couple of uh, things that uh, show, though, alternatively, that you can actually still have a pretty flash-looking car, but bit on the cheap. Now, the Bugatti Veyron, it was the world's most expensive car. They've just replaced it, but uh, it was worth over a couple of million dollars. Uh, Now you can buy one, well, the shape of one, put on a Mercury Cougar, and... uh, We'll come to another example in a minute. But, gentlemen, uh, would you find that convincing? Would you be happy to drive around in something that's uh, more flash than it is go? I think everybody knows it's a kit car. David, I think, <laughs> I think that's the yes. problem. sort of people you'd like to impress. Uh, it has the reverse effect. <laughs> Once you know that it's plastic surgery, <laughs> yeah. then you sort of lose that sort of mystique about it, don't you? Yep. The other alternative is, and by the way, the other one was the Camaro, that uh, you can now get a Burt's Reynolds look-alike from the, what was the show, um, Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. Mm. Now, now, Brian, would you like to look like Burt Reynolds? No, it's really not mine. I think if I was uh, going to buy a modern sort of rework of a classic car, it would be something like a um, Jaguar. 3.8 3.8 or something like that, I wouldn't be going for like a Chevy Camaro or a Pontiac Trans Am or something like that. It's interesting that they're still making them as, as basically as new from, uh, I guess, older versions of the car. The 2010 Camaro, that was the one I was talking about, was uh, actually designed in Australia. It was a deriv- derivative of the sort of work that they'd put into the Commodore and was named in 2010 as the World Car Design of the Year. Why don't you just stick with the original I think looking like Smokey and the Bandit, you'd, you'd have to buy chest hair wig sort of thing, wouldn't you, to uh, be a bit like Burt Reynolds? Just to be clear, this isn't, um, they're not continuing to make the 77 model, which is what they're, this is sort of aimed at the collectors of. It is based on a, a modern platform. A more modern version. Of um, which of... is from the, the, late, yeah. the late 2000s. But they've done the, the classic sort of tea bonnet, and it's got a genuine tea roof, and it's got the same kind of, Paint and markings, and as the uh, as the original one from the movie, and interestingly, they've actually got Burt Reynolds to to get involved and sign them all. 
That'll add to its value. Nurse holds his hand, I think, and helps him to, to, to scratch his initials on it. He's struggling to get around the factory. Let's yeah, that yeah. It, it, look, it would um, it just underlines just how old the vehicle is and how old Burt Reynolds is in this desperate sort of uh, attempt to reclaim something. And you're right, David, if, if this car is uh, you know, such a classic, why not? make their modern cars like more like this. It's a bit like the people that put a Starsky and Hutch, is it, uh, striped down the side. Hmm. I find it rather sad in a way. Of course, Top Gear did it on a little a Trabant or something, didn't <laughs> they? <laughs> yeah. But it is very sort of defensive of a company to, to say, look, you know, we've, we've got a modern version, but we're, we're going to bring back a classic edition when our cars were better, more loved. Yes. This one will go significantly faster. Uh, this one has more than four and a half times the horsepower of the original. The mob making it, Trans Am Depot, they had to license the logo and the name from General Motors. Yeah. Could build a Trans Am from a Camaro. Oh, okay. Yes, it's sort of like out of the frying pan into the fire, really, isn't it? You still end up with a General Motors product. <laughs> That's right. A very extreme badge engineering, isn't it? Yes. It cost... About 150,000 Australian dollars. They're going to build 77. This is for the Smokey and the Bandit one. The Bugatti Veyron only costs in Australian terms uh, just a bit over $79,000, which is a lot cheaper than the $2 million that it would cost you to buy a genuine Bugatti. But as you say, Brian, that once it's seen to be a fake, it's like a toupee. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's exactly like a toupee. This has been around for years. I, I, I can remember even when I was a kid that you could get these body kits to put on a, you know, Volkswagen Beetle chassis that would make that look like a Lamborghini Countach. They never, they're never the same. Why don't you get a Lamborghini Countach and put a Herbie the Beetle on it? <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. Sort of reverse kit car. Well, it, it's probably more memorable than to many people. That sure would be a sleeper, David. That sure, yeah. Like a Q-ship. And I think to some degree, particularly with autonomous cars coming in, they may be losing that idea and a, a greater enforcement, more control on vehicles. That freedom of jumping in a car and hooning about will, will diminish. Yes. And perhaps for a good thing too, and that it'll be just become a commodity. I spoke to Toyota the other day saying that if we're going to be renting out cars, should a lot of car makers then go for more universal features inside, controls, so that people who are regularly swapping cars aren't having to learn a new car every time mm, they get into customized. it. Customised. But I've got to say the Toyota didn't like that idea at all. <laughs> we shall remain unique, whatever that means in the future. Uh, Brian, you have a story of timing. Yes, David, it's, it's, it's strange timing indeed because uh, there was a bit of news recently that Google's uh, autonomous car had had its first at-fault crash and the, the car had um, had crashed into a bus at a very slow speed but uh, the fact it had hit another vehicle and that vehicle was a bus is interesting in the timing of its uh, recent patent which is called bus detection for autonomous vehicles. So this isn't Google's um, patent. Somebody else has, has uh, sent it to them as a, an assist for them for 
to uh, help the, the self-driving software recognize a large vehicle. Now, it's aimed mostly at school buses in the States, and they're big yellow buses with the word school on them. And uh, the idea is that the uh, detection system or the algorithm would, uh, would try to identify a large vehicle, check against bus school bus sizes, and test for visual cues such as uh, yellow paint or the word school. And then uh, once it sees that, the car would take special care around the bus. I wonder, David, if uh, that algorithm was in play during the um, the incident, which we're going to report on, whether it would have made a difference. Yes, I don't know. We will talk about the actual crash in detail next week. But, of course, school buses have particular problems, don't they? They have flashing lights, so you can only travel at 40 kilometres an hour. So not only do you have to recognise them, uh, but you actually have to do specific things because of them. Well, yes, in the States, a school bus, uh, it's illegal to pass a school bus when it's stopped. Uh, and, and letting people out or, or taking people on. And so they have a little sign that pops out from the side that says stop. And um, so, for example, the Google vehicle, in order to comply with the uh, road regulations, would need somehow to to um, acknowledge that it should stop in that case. And I guess in Australia, yes, it would be uh, school zones and um, you know, safety past school buses here as well. School buses are a bit unpredictable. You know, you can map bus stops in a in a sort of a normal route system, but school buses sometimes, uh, particularly in rural areas, can pick up and drop off at uh, telegraph poles and roadside um, letterboxes. Or picking up kids for sporting events. Mm. So, Brian, does that mean that what I'll do is I'll get to the word school written on the back of my car <laughs> and a stop sign, and then every Google car... will never pass you. Mm. You'll have the right to yourself. You're agile and disruptive, David. <laughs> now, Google applied for the patent back in 2014, I think, or the people did, which proves, of course, that they're, they're good for looking ahead, but they can't do anything about it. <laughs> I wonder whether Volkswagen had a, a patent for passing environmental tests. That <laughs> <laughs> one's still waiting. Apparently also in the Google patent pipeline is the don't hit the broad side of the barn system. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. See you, Thank you David. Brian Smith and Errol Smith are talking some of the more quirky news stories to do with transport. And you can hear Brian and Errol and I talk a little more about some of these subjects, including what happens with autonomous cars when you go to a different country or even a different state with different rules. And airport parking. Are we paying too much? Just how much profit is there in it? Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au and you can podcast the Quirky News segment by looking up Overdrive on your favourite podcast service. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. 
You can hear longer versions of the interview and road tests by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program and an extended version of the quirky news by going to Overdrive on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.